Join Dr. Brown as he continues to dig deep into the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ as he walks through the book of Galatians. This is Hearing is Believing. One of my favorite stories is Alexander Dumas's The Count of Monte Cristo. And if you've not seen that, let me just, or read it or seen it, I just want to commend it to you. It's this swashbuckling tale of uh, jealousy, mystery, and revenge. And there are two main characters in the book. And those two main characters, they have this conflict. And maybe you can guess this, but that conflict revolves around a lady, a beautiful young lady named Mercedes. Now, the book is a lot better than the movie, but either way, uh, if you've got to see something, I just encourage you. It's one of the greatest stories that's uh, been written in literature, Alexander Dumas's The Count of Monte Cristo. But I won't, I won't tell you the whole book, I won't tell you the whole story, but really just to provoke in your mind this question, why is it that the best stories involve people in conflict? Some of the best stories involve people in conflict. I don't know if any of you people are uh, Marvel fans or Avengers fans. Of course, in Atlanta, we had to be. Pinewood Studios was right next door to the town that I served as a, as a pastor on staff. And so we all had to be Avengers fans. I'll never forget one of the Avengers guys, uh, one of the producers coming up and asking if they could use the church. And I was like, yeah. And everybody else was like, well, maybe we don't want them to do that. Anyway, I'm thinking anyway. But so why is it there's no, uh, it always involves conflict. There's no Avengers if there's not a Thanos, right? There's no Avengers if there's not a villain. Why is it that the best stories involve usually two people in conflict? And that's exactly what we see in the Bible. In the Bible, we see conflict between two people. You have Cain and Abel. You have Saul and David. You have the parable of the prodigal son. You remember that other brother's reaction when his brother came home? Today, what I want us to do is I want us to look at a tale of two brothers. I want us to look at Ishmael and Isaac. And these are two sons of Abraham. One is the son of Sarah, and the other is the uh, son of Hagar. And Hagar was Abraham's concubine. And so one is the son of a promise, and the other is the son of a slave woman. And so let me just say this as an aside before we get started into the text. Let me just say this. I don't want you to get overly hung up or sensitive to the terms in the Bible, slave woman. Don't get overly hung up on that. The reason that I say that is because here's what we know. We know that Christ has made us realize the sickness of sexual sin that haunts the human heart. And the Bible chooses to show us the, the blemishes of Abraham and in this case, we get to see a pretty big one. We get to see a huge blemish. We get to look at his escapade with Hagar. And that was not good. And how Hagar was treated by Sarah was also not good. But if you go back and you read the story closely, then you'll see God's amazing grace pervade every page. And in our case today, this is an important note for you as you're thinking about reading the Bible, especially you college students, if you run across a skeptical professor or someone like that, maybe a skeptical classmate, the Bible is going to 
use description. It's going to tell us what happened. And then it uses that description to, uh, of an event to tell us an allegory. And what's an allegory? It's where the things refer to another thing. And let me just say this again as an aside. When the Bible talks about slavery here, the Bible is not condoning or excusing the type of enslavement that came to the U.S. in the 17 and 1800s. And passages like this were used to excuse abuse. But I just want to say emphatically, in our current cultural climate, abuse is not the point of this passage. And the point of this passage is to tell a story of, of two ways. One way is a way of freedom. The other way is a way of enslavement. And so Paul takes in Galatians chapter 4, go ahead and turn over there if you haven't already. Paul takes in Galatians chapter 4, he takes this passage, he takes this passage and he uses a provocative example. He provokes us and he makes this bold statement. And here's his statement. Those who suggest that Jesus plus other things equals salvation. Those who suggest that Jesus plus other things equals salvation are undermining grace and are being enslavers. And Paul condemns enslavers. And he does that outright in his letter to 1 Timothy. Listen to the context. And I love this. Listen to, I'm going to read this, 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. In that context, Paul is dealing with some of the same issues that he's dealing with in the Galatians. He's dealing with some of the same issues. He's dealing with those who want to wrongly use the law. Listen to what he says in 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understand this. That the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the ungodly and profane, those who strike their father and mother, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, there's the term, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God in which I have been entrusted. And so what Paul does is he uses the example that we have in our text this morning as an outright provocation to avoid the teaching of legalism and religiosity. You follow along in the text. Hear the Word of God this morning. Galatians 4. Let's start in verse 21. Hear God's Word. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and the other by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants, 
One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. She is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. Just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So, in our text, we have two brothers. In our text, we have a tale of freedom on the one hand and enslavement on the other. One found delight, and the other found bondage. One was the son of promise. The other was cut off from the inheritance. And here's what I know. I know my audience this morning. I know who I'm speaking to. I'm speaking to people who are pleasure seekers. Everyone within the sound of my voice is chasing after something. All of us are pleasure seekers. Everyone wants delight and not uh, everyone wants delight and pleasure. My son the other day, he asked, for example, he asked if he could have candy for supper. He wanted candy for supper. How many of you would love one day to have candy for supper? Some of you already, you start with your de- dessert first, and then you eat your main course. Your mother would never let you do that, so when you moved out, you started doing things your way. Just wait, you'll have kids, and you'll revert back. But my son the other day, he, uh, he said, can I have candy for supper? And so I said, absolutely you can have candy for supper. To which my wife, she was driving, she looked at me and she said, have you lost your mind? And you can guess who won the end of the day. My son did not end up having candy for supper. And why do we want candy for supper? The reason is, is because it's good. This is why C.S. Lewis, when he's writing the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, the, the white witch came to Edmund and he offered him uh, Turkish delight. He sold his brothers, he sold his brother and sisters for Turkish delight. Why is it that we want candy for supper? Because it's good. And let me just say this, don't you just wish, I know who I'm talking to this morning, don't you just wish that you could eat all that you want and never have to worry about gaining weight? Wouldn't that be great? I mean, who in the world came up with diets anyway? What a drag on life and fun and any expectation. But all of us are pleasure seekers. We're created to delight. We're created for pleasure. We are in need of satisfaction. And here's what else I know. You are desperately searching for satisfaction, and you'll continue until you find it. C.S. Lewis, in The Weight of Glory, here's what he said. 
the sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, a longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory, in the sense described, becomes highly relevant to our deep desire. For glory meant good rapport with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all of our lives will open at last. And there's something that you want this morning. For some of you, let's go back to the story of Abraham and Sarah and Abraham and Hagar and Sarah and Isaac and Hagar and Ishmael, for some of you, even the thought of mentioning a slave woman stirs you. Where did that come from? Why do you feel empathy for her? Because you were created to be satisfied. And the point of this passage The amazing point of the gospel that we preach here at First Baptist is that only Jesus satisfies. I want to say that clear as I can. It's only Jesus that satisfies. It's not Jesus plus all of these things. It's only Jesus satisfies. He doesn't need your church attendance to prop up his satisfaction. And I'm saying that as one who loves teaching to a crowd. I'm saying that as one who loves it when you come. He doesn't need your giving to prop up how he can satisfy you. I'm so grateful to pastor a generous church. He doesn't need your time to prop up how much He can satisfy you. Friends, only Jesus satisfies, and it's Him alone. And here's a lesson for us. Anything else, and I mean that, and I wish that I could be specific, but I'd rather just leave it right there so that the Holy Spirit can be specific in your own heart at this moment. Anything else that distracts from the finished work of Christ on the cross is enslavement. Any practice that we hold dear, any of our preferential whatevers, any tradition that we, that elevates ourselves or anything else over Christ is chains and bondage. Because only Jesus satisfies. 
And so this is what I want to do this morning. I want to, I want to teach us four truths from this text, four truths that teach us about delight, four truths that teach us about delight, four truths from a tale of these two brothers that teach us about delight. So hopefully you're taking notes. Write this down. Number one, write this down. The law does not build delight. The law does not build delight. Look at the text. There is a, a Paul, he's getting personal. By this point in his letter writing, he's getting personal with those who oppose him. It's almost like he's really coming after them now. He's getting personal. He's getting in their face. Look at what he says here. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law. You hear what he's saying there? Notice the thrust. He's saying you. He's getting personal with them. He's saying you who desire to be under the law. But look, there's a play on the word law. You see, there's two references for law. Do you see that? The first time he uses the word, he refers to the letter of the law. And the next time he uses it, he refers to the spirit of the law. And so here's what he's saying. He's he's going to teach us from the law. And his teaching from the law is to call us to listen to what the law is all about all along. The intention of the law. Do you hear it? He said, you who desire to be under the law, don't you listen to the law? What did Jesus say when he was on the earth? He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. And so Paul is saying the same thing that Jesus said to Nicodemus. How are you being a teacher of the law and you don't understand these things? Jesus is, Paul is saying the same thing that Jesus said. And Paul is saying, listen to the law. Look at verse 22. Look at what he says. It is written. Do you see that? That's the same language that Jesus used when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. It is written. So what's Paul doing? He's arguing from the Old Testament. And what's he doing? He's demonstrating that faith saves, not works of the law. Faith alone saves, not works of the law. And even if the law is good, which it is, it isn't saving because it can't. If it could, then there would be no reason for promise. But promise pervades every page. And the reason that we need the promise is because we are incapable of obeying. The reason we need promise is because we can't do what this book says. And so God doesn't just take the book and say, here, have at it. Do your best. Hope it turns out well for you. Let me know. I'll see you at the end. He doesn't do that. Instead, what does he do? He gives us promise because he knows that we're broken and we're in need of restoration He knows that we've sinned and we stand in need of salvation. And here's what he's promised. Salvation comes through redemption by grace through faith. And we're entering the text here. This is Galatians chapter 4. These thoughts, they uh, they follow Paul's thoughts earlier in the chapter. I want to show you this. Let's do a little Bible study this morning just in Galatians 
Look, for example, at chapter 4 and verse 12. Look at what Paul says something there that's, uh, that's rather stunning. Look at what he says. Brothers, and that's uh, brothers or sisters, I entreat you, become as I am, for I have also become as you are. You know what he's saying there? Paul is, he's equating Judaism with paganism. Paul's equating Judaism with paganism. Look at what it says after that. He's talking about uh, you observe days, and or it says before that, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I've labored over you in vain in verse 10 and 11. In other words, the days and the months are a reference to the Old Testament legal code. But Paul said, Paul equates the Judaism that rose out of the Old Testament, he equates that with paganism. It's the same argument that Isaiah had. He said, Isaiah said, uh, your burnt offerings are not satisfying to me. Your observance of all these festivals do you no good. And then there's this promise in Isaiah, come you who say, uh, or Isaiah says, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Promise. Promise pervades every page. And what does Paul say? Paul says that these things were added because of transgression. So let's do a little Bible study. Follow the argument. Look back, for example, at chapter 3 of Galatians, and uh, let's, let's just follow the argument. Look at, look at verse 11. Let's start reading at 3 verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified by God before the law. Now, that's pretty provocative. Did you get that? It is evident, Paul said, no one is justified before God by the law. And then he quotes Scripture, the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through what? What's your Bible say there? What's the word? Someone tell me. Faith. Now, you're going to have to say that a couple more times, so just be ready, all right? I'll prompt you. You just speak back to me. It'll go great and smooth. I'll point, and you say faith. It would be simple. Let's keep going. Look at chapter 3 and verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. And then look at this word, until, until. There's a reference of time. That means something's going to expire until the offspring should come to whom, look at this word, the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary, here's our word again, to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that, here's our word again, the promise by faith, very good, in Jesus Christ might be given to those who 
believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. In other words, the law doesn't build the light. It can't build the light. The only thing that it can do is it can make us anxious. The only thing that it can do is it can build anxiety. Making us wonder, all right, where are we there yet? Are we there yet? Like my children when we're going to Disney World. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? That's what the law does because there's an until. There's this expectation. There's this promise. There's this hope. The law builds anxiety. It can never satisfy. Number two, the second thing to learn this morning, write this down. Delight comes through promise. Delight comes through promise. And so to illustrate this, what's Paul do? He uses allegory. He looks at the Old Testament story of Abraham. And who was Abraham? He was the one who was justified by faith. And he looked at that story and he saw a tale of of two brothers. One was born through promise. The other was born in slavery. You know what Paul's point in telling us that story is? The Old Testament unfolds around promise. It's not as if promise was not there or promise develops later or promise is sort of a plan B to things. No, no. The whole Old Testament unfolds around promise. Not something that humanity can do. Not something that we can accomplish. That story in Genesis 16 tells us a story that Sarah was old. Here's what it says. If we could go back, we'd read it. And it says, the way of women had ceased with Sarah. Her Her womb was dead. But she'd received a promise. A promise of God. And so they started thinking perhaps, well, okay, we've seen this promise, but maybe God wasn't doing this. Maybe He was going to say something different. And and so you know what they did? They had a moment where they decided that they were going to get ahead of the promise of God. And instead of waiting on what God would do, they decided to take matters into their own hands. And their lack of waiting, bless you, was disastrous. Their lack of waiting was disastrous. And so what happens here? Instead of rejoicing, Sarah was embittered. You know, I really read the story, and and I really have no idea why she thought that it'd be a good idea to give Abraham Hagar and things were going to work out. But that's what happened. And that's what happens when we substitute grace. Our minds get clouded, and we do things that we thought that we'd never do. But she cast her out. The Bible says that Sarah and Abraham cast 
Hagar and Ishmael out, but the Bible keeps going, and it says that God saw her. That's where the name Ishmael comes from. He heard her and cared for her. You can read all about that in Genesis 16. But the story of of Hagar and Ishmael is a sad one. And through that whole story, we're meant to learn delight comes through promise. You want to have delight? Lean into the promise that God has made through Jesus Christ. Notice this, this reference here in my Bible, you have it there too, in verse 27, the reference. You know, that's a, that's a reference to Isaiah chapter 54. And hoping in the promise, that is, that is longing for God to accomplish His Word, that's what brings rejoicing. You hoping in what God has said is what brings true rejoicing. Longing for God to fulfill His Word. That's what brings true rejoicing. But can I also say something that the Bible's pointing out for us too? Let's pay attention. This is also the thing that our world doesn't understand. Who are we? We're a people who are resting on the promise of God. Why do we come to a church service like this? Because we believe the promise. Why not go out and go do a a thousand other things other than come to a moment like this and be refreshed and refueled and sent out? Why? Because we believe the promise. Go out from here, and you can see the, the rest of the world, a majority of even our community, they could care less that we're here. Doesn't affect them either way, but we're here because we believe the promise of God. And what the world doesn't understand, they persecute. And the story of of us as the people who gather, people who worship, people who say Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, people who come to in a moment like this and try to live distinctly as Christians, saying that our conscience is bound to the Word of God. We're held captive by that Word, and we can do no other. Listen closely. The third thing for you to learn this morning is delight is dangerous. Delighting in the Lord, delighting in His promises, holding tight to what God has said, it's dangerous. And so what do we have in the Bible? We have this instance of Paul going back to Hagar and that Sarah incident, and he points out a time in Genesis chapter 21 where rivalry broke out between Isaac and Ishmael, and the result, look at what happened in chapter 4 and verse 30. It says, cast out the slave woman and her son. And he uses the instance to refer to the false teachers who have no place sharing a false gospel with these Galatians. Now, they, these false people, these false teachers, they, 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 they meant well, but we're not talking about their intention. They're harming believers. And you know what's harmful? 
The harmful part of their evangelism, the harmful part of their message is they are asking them to rest their hope on themselves. They're asking them to add to the finished work of Christ on the cross. Now, none of you would ever look to Jesus and say, with his arms outstretched, bloodied and beaten and dead, a substitute for sinners, no one would look at him and say, you know what, thank you, God, but that's not enough. We do it every day when we don't believe that only Jesus satisfies. You see, the false teachers are turning their gospel songs from Jesus paid it all to Jesus paid some of it. From it is well to it might be, but I just can't be sure. From rock of ages cleft from me, let me hide myself in thee to look at the house that I have built and what I have done. The message of the false teachers takes the power out of the blood and makes us say, glory to my name. Great things I have done. Instead of saying, how great thou art, the false gospel says, how great I am. It doesn't say it so loud and verbose. We aren't just as we are without one plea. According to the false gospel, we are our own remedy. And the religious, the legalizers, the work-based folks, they don't understand our freedom that we have in Christ. And so they come to you and they'll say to you, you haven't done enough. To which we simply need to reply, you're right, but he has done enough. And what he has done is put an end to my sin. What he has done is made a satisfaction for my sin. You see, what these false teachers don't realize is that there's no expiration date on what he's done. He said that it's finished. Any minute, it's covered by the blood. Your sins are forgiven. My past sins, forgiven. My present sin, forgiven. That sin that I'm going to do later that I don't even know that I'm going to do, that I'm trying to avoid doing right now, forgiven. Jesus paid it all. And therefore, there is no expiration date on delight. Fourthly and finally, delight lasts forever. Look at verse 30. 
as children of the free woman, we are, verse 29, born according to the Spirit. Born not by what man could do, not by what we could do, not by what my grandmama did, my mama did, my daddy did, but what God did, what He did. And what did He do? He did it all so that I can be in relationship with Him for forever. We have traded in the do this of the law for the I will of the promise. We have traded in the don't do this of the law for the He has done it of the cross. It is finished, beloved. Jesus paid it all. So I ask you a question. Which one are you? Are you a slave or are you free? Are you trapped in the do this, don't do this to be justified? Or are you resting this morning in the promise of God? You say, well, what has He promised? According to Hebrews 7, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to Him. In other words, He is able to save to the uttermost those who trust in Him. So here's God's Word for you this morning. Only trust Him. Only trust Him now. He can save you. He and He alone can save you. He can save you right now. And it's my prayer that you will leave here today confident of this. I may not know tomorrow. I may not know the next day. I may not know all these things. But I trust in Jesus. I trust in Jesus. Father, I pray that we trust you. Lord, I can tell you that I trust you. All my hope and dreams, all that I am, all my failures and fears, I trust you. You have received me, saved me, and I trust you. And it's my prayer that that is true of everyone here, that they trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Dr. Andy Brown, Senior Pastor of First Baptist Startville in Startville, Mississippi. If you enjoyed what you heard, make sure to follow Hearing is Believing on Facebook and rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also find us at hearingisbelieving.org.